Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Simon Nata, and I am an instructor at Vancouver Area Universities, namely UBC, Simon Fraser University, and Kwantlen Polytechnic University. For today's podcast interview, I have invited Asa McCurcher and Michael Stevenson, co-editors of the book North of America, Canadians and the American Century, 1945 to 1960, published by UBC Press. Asa McCurcher is an assistant professor in the Department of History at the Royal Military College of Canada. He is a senior fellow of the Bill Graham Centre for Contemporary International History, and he is the editor-in-chief of International Journal, Canada's Journal of Global Policy Analysis. His books include Canada and the World Since 1867, Camelot in Canada, Canadian-American Relations in the Kennedy Era, and Undiplomatic History, Rethinking Canada in the World. Michael D. Stevenson is a professor of history at the Aurelia campus of Lakehead University. He completed his doctorate at the University of Western Ontario in 1996 and has worked previously at the Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade, McMaster University, and York University. His publications include Canada's Greatest Wartime Muddle, National Selective Service and the Mobilization of Human Resources during World War II, and he has edited or co-edited three volumes in the Documents on Canadian External Relations series covering the John Diefenbaker government. Asa and Michael, it is a real pleasure to have you both as my guests today. Thank you, Simon. Thanks very much for having us. Tell us the origins of this book and what motivated you to focus on Canada in the 1950s. This book originated in separate conversations Asa and I had with Greg Donaghy um, in 2015 um, when Greg was the head of the historical section uh, of what is now uh, Global Affairs uh, Canada. Uh, both of us were thinking about, uh, again, separately, topic of examining the 1950s in Canadian-American relations. Uh, Both of us felt that the relationships between the Roosevelt and the Truman administrations and the um, Kennedy and the Johnson administrations uh, had been covered uh, fairly extensively, uh, but we did think that there was a gap in the existing literature about Canadian-American relations in the in the 1950s. So eventually, the three of us got together, uh, Greg uh, and Asa uh, and myself, and we determined that this was a, a really excellent project to pursue. Uh, we did submit a, a SHRC application uh, that was successful, and we spent three or four years uh, researching uh, for, uh, for that particular project. We had two main... Uh, publications in mind when we started. The first was a narrowly focused book on Can-Am relations uh, from 1953 to 1961, uh, the Eisenhower administration itself. And we also had planned an edited collection uh, that was scheduled to come out of a conference to be held at the Bill Graham Center 
at the University of Toronto. So the plans for both projects went ahead. In terms of the edited collection, um, we uh, were obviously affected by, uh, first, the COVID pandemic, which forced us to put off the originally scheduled conference in May of 2020 uh, to a future date. And then, tragically, Greg passed away in the summer of 2020 as well. We decided to carry on with the project. We did restage the conference in an online format in May of 2021. We took those papers, and with some additional papers that were solicited, uh, we put together a manuscript uh, that went through peer review with UBC Press. Um, and that, um, you know, two years later, uh, is the, uh, the result has now uh, appeared or will be published uh, in the coming uh, couple of months, uh, this North of America collection, uh, looking at you know, all aspects of the influence of the United States on Canada in the 15 years following the end of the Second World War. As you write in the introduction, there is no shortage of works on Canada-U.S. relations. So I wonder if you could tell us what new approaches did you or your contributors use to study Canadian society in the 1950s? Uh, well, I, I mean, as we know, there are lots of studies of Canada-U.S. relations. However, they tend to be relatively narrowly focused in that they're largely looking at um, sort of international relations, state-to-state -state relations, relationships between presidents and prime ministers and diplomats and ministers and those other sorts of officials. And that's great, valuable history. Indeed, part of our wider Shirk project is a history of the Eisenhower administration's approach to, to Canada and the, and the St. Laurent and Baker governments. But obviously, Canada-U.S. relations or Canadian-American relations, maybe better understood in those terms, is, is much broader in scope. And so as a part of our project, we wanted to look at such relations in the 1950s, broadly speaking, um, that, that go beyond, in effect, kind of state-to-state -state relations. And so this is part of what our, what our book project is, what the symposium was about, was looking and drawing in scholars who are looking at essentially beyond kind of the typical sort of aspects of Canada's relations that are explored. And so in this, this, this book, we get you know, a much wider focus, what we might think of as sort of transnational history or international history, um, beyond the kind of state-to-state -state level relations. And so in this way, it really fills a gap, which seems odd, again, because there's so much written about Canada-US relations, but it tends to be, again, very kind of focused at the, at the elite level. So this is much more broad-based, uh, focused on far more issues, uh, very much reflecting, and I guess, the, the transnational turn in Canadian historiography over the past uh, 15 years or so. Um, and feel for some of your listeners might be aware of sort of the Canada, you know, Canada and the British world sort of um, uh, areas of study over the last, you know, 15 or 20 years too, looking at sort of Canadian transnational relations, uh, identity in relation to the British Empire. Uh, and so our work is very much sort of like that, obviously, but fitting Canada into, I guess, a North American world as opposed to a, as opposed to a British world. Uh, and so there's a, a huge variety of topics, a huge variety of actors that are being explored here, uh, issues as diverse as jazz music and television and, uh, and, and consumerism and, uh, and also some spy stuff and, and nuclear bombs as well. So very much reflecting the 1950s. So there is a great variety of essays in this volume, and you have divided them thematically into three sections. So part one deals with international relations in a nuclear-armed early Cold War world. Part two deals with domestic politics and national and provincial identity. And part three deals with efforts to delineate Canadian culture 
So all these essays I found had great insight into America's impact on Canadian politics, culture, and society. I wonder if you could tell us if there were any particular chapters or any kind of research findings that stood out to you. We are indeed fortunate to have had wonderful contributors uh, who submitted um, outstanding uh, individual chapters. Uh, I was personally interested in the, the cultural section as we were uh, editing uh, the the book uh, for uh, excellent chapters there, uh, looking at the cultural influence of the United States uh, on Canada from 1945 to 1960. Uh, two essays in that third section, looking at cultural matters, um, include chapters written by Eric Fillion and Stephen Assey. Uh, Eric Fillion looks at the Stratford Shakespearean Festival and the inclusion of uh, jazz music uh, in the in the program from 1956 to 1958. Billy has really put together an interesting analysis of the reasons why uh, jazz music was uh, brought on board uh, at the Stratford Shakespearean Festival. Um, kind of a, an examination of um, the luminaries in the Canadian and American jazz environment. Um, you know, Oscar Peterson, obviously, uh, Duke Ellington are uh, brought into Stratford uh, in this, um, on the schedule of the, of the Stratford Festival. Uh, Philion looks at the uh, reaction of the, of the media to the um, jazz performances, how these performances were received by, by the general public. Um, and some of the both, you know, praise and, um, you know, negative comments that were received uh, about the, uh, the jazz performances uh, at, at Stratford. Just a really interesting, you don't often associate the Stratford Festival with, uh, with jazz, um, but it really was uh, an excellent overview um, of, the, of the reasons why um, the jazz program was launched uh, at the Stratford Festival in the mid 19 uh, 50s. Similarly, Stephen Atsey provided an excellent chapter uh, looking at the um, influence of American consumer culture on Canadians. Uh, in the 1950s, a time of tremendous prosperity, you know, GNP increases dramatically. Um, Atsey provides um, a wealth of, of information about the, uh, the affluence of Canadians uh, in the 1950s, uh, the rise of the automobile culture, um, great housing uh, boom, suburbanization, um, the baby boom, of course, is going on at this particular time as well. Um, so there is the kind of American-inspired uh, consumerism that we see uh, in the 1950s, uh, but there's also a fair amount of criticism or concern uh, about the cultural influence of the United States uh, that's coming in concert with the uh, the economic prosperity uh, of the of the 1950s, and actually looks at a lot of different measures, like um, you know, the rise of Canadian economic nationalism, uh, the Royal Commission on Canada's economic prospe uh, prospects, um, the Ethan Baker government that comes into office in June of 1957, you know, on that specific almost populist, somewhat anti-American platform. Um, you know, all of these matters are dealt with uh, by 
uh, by Atsi in his in his chapter. So that that third section for me, um, as someone who's not a cultural historian, um, you know, really was was a pleasure to uh, um, to to edit and be involved with, um, you know, just really interesting material um, on topics that um, you know I think I think many of us hadn't really thought very much about uh, before. And if I could highlight uh, two uh, chapters, one would be by uh, Susan Colborn of Duke University, who looks at Canadian foreign policy towards the Soviet Union in the 1950s. So this is a period of obviously tense sort of red scare, Cold War sort of paranoia. It's also the period in which Canada is alleged to have, you know, flown, flown in kind of the highest kind of circles of global councils, and with this period of kind of intense Canadian influence abroad. Uh, and she does a very good job of sort of exploring some of those issues sort of play out uh, during this period of intense kind of Cold War tension uh, by looking at Lester Pearson, the Canadian foreign minister's attempts to foster uh, detente, foster sort of more friendlier relations with the Soviet Union. Um, this is, if, if, if you know, some of you viewers might know, but in 1955, for instance, Lester Pearson becomes the first NATO foreign minister to visit the Soviet Union um, in, in the Cold War. It's, it's a visit known infamously for a drinking contest that the Canadian side has dared to sort of dared to under take by the, the Soviets and kind of a, you know, a, a scene out of any kind of university bar uh, on, a, on, a, on a Thursday night anyway. But the broader significance is this is a period in which, again, Canada is at the kind of the height of its influence uh, in, in kind of the post-war world. Um, and it's an effort by the Canadians to sort of maneuver somewhat independently. Uh, and she does a good job of exploring some of these, these sort of issues, because this is also a period, of course, in which the Canada-US alliance is very strong too. So Canada is trying to play sort of an influential role in the world while also mindful of, of its broader sort of alliance with the United States. And the, the other chapter I'll just sort of highlight is by Jennifer Tunnicliffe at Toronto Metropolitan University, who looks at um, sort of white supremacy uh, and challenges to it both in, in Canada, but obviously in the United States and the influence then of you know the, the the emerging or or strengthening kind of civil rights movement in the 1950s in the United States and it's it's kind of transnational influence across the border in Canada the Dresden inf in, incident in Ontario and some other sorts of issues, in which the growing civil rights movement in, in the United States really served to highlight uh, the same sort of conditions in Canada the kind of discourse of the civil rights movement was used by actors in Canada um, both to to shame you know governments and and, and others and to 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 make sort of you know anti anti anti-racist sort of provisions uh, in an emerging sort of human rights discourse at the time, um, which isn't to say that you know, the, uh, these developments are only the, the, the response to, to events in the United States, but that certainly played a big influence on that. Uh, and that sort of theme of you know, influ events in Canada having an, a resonance, uh, kind of a North American resonance, is certainly uh, uh, prevalent here and, and throughout the collection. So. Uh, well, it's, it's, it becomes very clear that there's trepidation and uneasiness about being neighbors to the United States, right? This sort of fear of being overwhelmed economically and culturally. You know, we see, for example, in your book that as early as 1957, Prime Minister Diefenbaker sought to achieve greater economic independence from the United States. But I sort of wonder if you could give us examples where Canadians look to the United States for perhaps inspiration for some sort of positive change at home or maybe as an early warning to the kind of change that Canada might also undertake. I think an example of negative changes in the United States that Canadians wanted to avoid um, is dealt with in the chapter by Jonathan English looking at Frederick Gardner uh, and the development of Toronto's transit system in the 1950s and the 
and the 1960s. Um, this was a time period when the highway uh, became kind of accepted transportation that transportation doctrine uh, in many areas of the United States and also also in Canada. Uh, clearly, the Interstate Highway Act in 1956 in the United States poured billions of dollars uh, into the expansion of the highway system uh, in the in the U.S. And that mania for highways also was found in uh, metropolitan environments where city planners look to the development of highways and expressways uh, at the expense of more traditional transit systems. So the 50s and 60s see this decline in transit networks in major American cities. Ridership declines, services, services are cut. Um, you know, it, it's really a bad time for for metro transit uh, operations in the United States. That's not what happens in Toronto, where Frederick Gardner, in his capacity as the uh, chairman of the municipality of Metro Toronto, beginning uh, in 1953, um, he vigorously protected Toronto's metro transit infrastructure. He realized that it would require government subsidies uh, to maintain uh, that that transit system. A very um, kind of great foresight on on Gardner's part uh, that has allowed the metro transit system in Toronto uh, to remain the backbone of the of the system that we have with us with us today. So while the American system was uh, kind of highways highways and virtually nothing but highways at the expense of metro transit systems, um, you know that pattern wouldn't be reversed until the late sixties and and nineteen seventies. Um, Toronto, as Jonathan English points out, uh, was the only major transit system in uh, North America to see a ridership increase uh, between the end of the Second World War and the, the late 1960s. Uh, so it's certainly an interesting approach taken by, uh, by English, uh, again, focusing on Frederick Gardner and how he differed in many respects, from his approach, from his approach to uh, to um, you know the development of transit systems uh, in major urban centers in Canada and the and the United States. Other papers, of course, uh, in terms of Canada, not necessarily following the example. David Webster, in the opening chapter of the book, looks at the attitude of Canada towards uh, neutralism and non-alignment. Um, Canadian foreign affairs officials were much more sympathetic to the um, desires of the global south not to be fully aligned with one side or the other in the Cold War. Obviously, that was against kind of Washington's much more uh, stringent ideological approach uh, to the prosecution of the, of the Cold War. Uh, and Webster's chapter is a very careful analysis of how Canada walked that fine line uh, between being a strong supporter of the Western alliance while also, um, you know, allowing itself the freedom uh, to be much more supportive of neutralism and non-alignment uh, in, the, in the 1950s.
And on those lines, uh, in her, her chapter, Penny Bryden looks at sort of emerging constitutional, judicial sort of issues taking place in Canada, beginning in the, in the, the Citizenship Act of 1946, uh, and then the decision two years later for the, the British uh, Judicial Committee, the Privy Council, to no longer become the final court of appeal, uh, or a place of appeal for Canada, so the dominance of the Supreme Court, and for emerging questions about Canada, whether it should have a Bill of Rights, uh, um, and obviously, that later, what would later be the patriation of the Constitution. So, to look at these kind of evolving issues, constitutional and, and, and judicial issues, against uh, a period in which the United States uh, judicial system became extremely activist. So, this is the period of the, the you know, leading up to the Warren Court uh, and other sorts of things. So, to, the, the, the promise and peril uh, for Canadian constitutional advocates uh, and other sort of people involved in the judicial area. Particularly, also of course, Prime Minister uh, Louis Saint Laurent, uh, you know, the United States serving as as uh, pr promise and peril for how the Canadian sort of constitutional and judicial systems, Bill of Rights system, rights uh, rights uh, regime should evolve uh, in in Canada or along British lines and, and or American lines and other sorts of questions like this. So, uh, I also wonder uh, about French Canadians. Uh, how did French Canadians who prior to 1945, felt threatened by American society, how did they react to this sort of new era of American power and continentalism? Well, we have a, a chapter by uh, uh, François-Olivier Doray and uh, Daniel Poitras, who offer a very, I think, pathbreaking and interesting look at, uh, at French-Canadian, particularly Quebecois, attitudes in the in this period, the 1940s, 1950s, up to the 1960s. Uh, this is a period, of course, coinciding with the, 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 the Grand Noirceur, the great darkness of uh, Maurice Duplessis. And so they really, um, who, who's often sort of seen to be the, you know, the bag man for American corporate interests and other sorts of things. So they do a really good job at exploring um, and, and complicating, of course, what we know about the, the roots of the of the Quiet Revolution, something that's obviously been going going uh, undergoing some examination in, in Quebecois historiography for a while, um, and looking at the place of the United States in this. And the conclusions they sort of draw um, are very similar to the conclusions that I think many of our contributors draw, which is some some ambivalence, if you like. There's uh, the threat of the of, of of the United States, particularly in kind of cultural and linguistic lines. Again, something felt uh, outside of Quebec as well, but obviously very keenly in Quebec due to the, the minority status of the French language within, within North America, uh, but also the great attraction of the United States uh, uh, to, to Quebec, particularly Quebec nationalists and others, other reformers during this period, I guess what we'd think of as the, the people involved, you know, eventually in the Quiet Revolution. So, um, you know, and just to quote, you know, this, this wonderful quote they have from their, their piece, Quebec's relationship with the United States became a sign of its continental roots, torn constantly between an increasingly distant France, Great Britain and Rome, and a less and less contested American Anchorage. So again, the United States serving as this point of, of promise and peril in Quebec, as well as the rest of Canada. So again, if we think of sort of the, the two solitudes, uh, there's, there's a lot of commonality in the two solitudes view of the United States uh, during this period. Again, when the United States is, is culturally perhaps at the height of its, of its influence in North America, but certainly around the world uh, in, in this, you know, the, the American century, as, as, as uh, Henry Luce, uh, the, the editor of Time Life magazine, calls it. So uh, from ambivalence, I find there's a different tone in your, your book. Uh, by the end of the 1950s and the early 1960s, there seems to be a different tone towards our American neighbors. In his concluding thoughts, for example, Norman Hilmer writes, and I quote, The American century made Canada more like the United States, but it did not make Canadians like America more. Uh, do you believe that the tone did change significantly by the 1950s? And if so, uh, why? 
I would support the idea that the tone did indeed change uh, by the end of the 1950s. And I think that a lot of, a lot of that has to do that a lot of that change in tone has to do with the uh, John Diefenbaker government you know, coming in in June 1957. Diefenbaker enters office again on this platform of uh, Canadian economic nationalism. Although he enjoyed very good relationships, personal relationships with President Eisenhower, uh, certainly he was um, increasingly perhaps a thorn in the side uh, of the Eisenhower administration uh, before Eisenhower left office in, in January of 1961. Lots of positive things are happening in Canadian-American relations during Diefenbaker's time in office, while Eisenhower was also uh, in office, you know, the Columbia River Agreement, uh, the creation of NORAD uh, in 1957 and 1958. Um, but there certainly were uh, tension points uh, in the, uh, the years Eisenhower remained in office, overlapping with, with Ethan Baker. Uh, obviously, the nuclear weapons issue was the, um, was the one that caused... Washington officials the, the most concern, um, the refusal of the Diefenbaker Conservative government to accept nuclear warheads for, uh, for Canadian forces, uh, other economic issues as well, the disposal of uh, U.S. grain surpluses in foreign markets that cut out Canadian commercial transactions. Um, so there, there is certainly, uh, I think, a change in tone. Um, the, the style of the Diefenbaker government was different than the style of the Saint Laurent government, and you know any number of issues um, certainly added a sense of um, difficulty to the Canadian American um, relationship. And then finally, uh, then as today, American mass media and popular culture plays a major role in debates about Canadian national identity. The 1950s saw the introduction of television to Canada, and today Canadians use American-owned streaming services and social media. I wonder if you could tell us if you see any parallels or differences today with the way American media and popular culture was discussed in Canada in the 1950s. Uh, well, I think what's interesting is, um, you know, not to be presentist about it, I guess, but you know, in, in 1951, the Massey Commission warned that Hollywood refashions us in its its own image, which is this very scary image, of course, of Canadians consuming American media, becoming Americans. And of course, we've had 70 years of that, and I think most Canadians and feel very Canadian, no matter what, that, that Quebecois feel very Quebecois, and other sorts of issues. So, um, but at the same time, of course, there is this pervasive threat of, 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 of American media. We've seen recent uh, debates and discussions of about the role of the CBC, for instance, on Twitter and with the leader of the official opposition and other sorts of things. Uh, so obviously, you know, cultural things like Radio Canada or, or CBC or other, other other types of media obviously play an important role in fashioning our Canadian identity, whether we sometimes maybe take it for granted or not. Um, so we do see some discussion here, uh, but at the same time, we live obviously in a globalized world. So there's just less... There's more media, probably, but less American-specific media. You know, my students are listening to Korean, Korean rock music and other kinds of things. I mean, that, so they're living in a globalized world, but certainly a lot of that is American, too. 
like in the 1950s, though, much of American media is also made by Canadians who obviously go to Hollywood and other places and are part of this North American media is maybe a better way to think about this. And certainly, uh, you know, some of our contributors touch on the kind of North American dimension to some of these cultural questions. Um, so, you know, it, it is it's this 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 perennial question, I guess, living close to the American behemoth or the American elephant, as Pietro would have it. Um, you know, America also is, is what we make it. So it's it's the land of Barack Obama and Donald Trump. It's the land of Las Vegas and the Bible Belt. I mean, this is the, the fascinating thing of, of course, living next to the United States is we have a front row seat to this 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 wild country of, of great contrast. So, um, but there, there is certainly, you know, the influence of these kinds of things. So, you know, the premier of Alberta recently caught on tape admitting that she thought she had the power to pardon uh, convicted criminals because she'd seen this on Law and Order. Um, so, you know, th different ways in which American influences work their way north. Asa and Michael, I want to thank you both for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for having us. Cool. My guests today were Asa McKercher and Michael Stevenson, editors of North of America, Canadians in the American Century, 1945 to 1960. This book was published by UBC Press in 2023. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queen's University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Simone Nante. This interview was recorded on April 18th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team who also support the Champlain Society. Mm -hmm.